Uh, loving Father, we thank you that we can uh, fellowship with you and each other with our Bibles open, that we can hear you speak. And indeed, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that you grow us in Christ. And as we dwell in these words for a moment, Father, you'd show us again and again the glory and wonder that is your Son, Jesus. Uh, lead us in the way of repentance and faith, and we ask this all to your praise and glory. Amen. Exodus. I hope you uh, kept your finger in your Bible uh, at the page. And uh, there's a sermon outline. And on the back of the sermon outline, there's um, a, a Bible study. At the bottom of the Bible study, there's a diagram, a pretty picture. It's not so pretty, but there it is. All right, well, we've spent a few weeks in the book of Exodus. I wonder what you think Exodus is about uh, you might have already formed some ideas. And last week we got to the Ten Commandments. And maybe the temptation is that we're done and that the rest is boring like some kind of extended appendices. But there's still another 20 chapters after the Ten Commandments. We can't be finished yet. I mean, to finish now would be like walking out of a movie halfway through. And who does that? One of our difficulties now is that the narrative, the story seems to slow down. We move from the action blockbuster of snakes and frogs and hail and parting of the sea uh, to oh, instructions. How to build an ark, how to build a table, how to build a lampstand, a tent even. And it's kind of like moving from the vivid action sequences of Star Wars to... I don't know, flicking the channel and it's, oh, it's better homes and gardens. I mean, one minute it's lightsabers and X-wing fighters and then it's, oh, you know, there's Tara and this week she's painting a cupboard a new colour brown. Uh, it seems to be like that. But far from being boring, these chapters are significant and important and momentous. These chapters are glorious because with all the drama of last week, with all the drama, and there was plenty of drama. I mean, if you remember the fire, do you remember the fire on the mountain? Do you remember the smoke and the thunder of God? Do you remember the lightning and the trembling and the earthquake? And do you remember when, when, when God said, don't touch the mountain lest you die? And, and then they said, please don't speak lest we die. The question is, how is the Lord and his people, how are they going to get on from now on? In fact, this was Israel's very question back in chapter 17, verse 7. In chapter 17, verse 7, you might remember the water from the rock story. People are thirsty and they're pestering Moses. And their big question is, well, you know, Moses, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And maybe... We have days just like, just like that, where we feel like asking God, hey, is the Lord with us or not? Sometimes it feels like he's not. And how is that supposed to work anyway? 
How's that supposed to work, remember? Big, awesome God, thunderous, mighty, noisy, fire and smoke from the mountain. That was chapter 19. How is he and Israel, how are they supposed to exist together? And in chapter 25, verse 8, we begin to get an answer. Chapter 25, verse 8, we see the goal of what's called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a place where God is going to live and dwell among his people. And sometimes it's called a sanctuary. And sometimes it's called the tent of the meeting place. In verses 1 to 7 of chapter 25, we see the materials are outlined. And then verse 8. Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. In light of chapter 19, what we did last week, this is, this is epic. This is huge because the Lord wants to dwell among the Israelites. He wants to live among them and this is how it's going to work. Now think, when was the last time God actually lived and dwelt among people? Not appeared. I'm not talking about a theoph. I'm talking. When did he dwell among his people? In the garden. Genesis chapter two. In the garden of Eden, God is described as walking in the garden with his people in the cool of the day, and it is wonderfully intimate. It's beautiful, but it's also tragically lost with a fall. And sin. And humanity is removed from God's presence. And the garden goes into lockdown, doesn't it? The Garden of Eden was guarded by a what? A cherubim, an angel of the Lord. But here with the tabernacle, God is again going to dwell among his people. And so this tabernacle is in some measure a return to that which was lost in some measure. The tabernacle is like a step back to Eden. But it comes with a difference, a massive difference because, well, sin has changed everything. God's presence among his people isn't as easy as walking in the cool of the day. And just like oil and water do not mix, the holy God and sin does not mix. Everything about the tabernacle is a vivid lesson in the holiness of God. It's a lesson in the seriousness of sin and the extreme difficulty it is for God to be near sinful human people. So on the back of your outline is a floor plan of the tabernacle. And you can see the three main areas. The innermost area is what's called the most holy place, or some people call it the holy of holies. And that's where God's presence showed itself. And next to that room is the holy place. Notice it's different from the most holy place. And then outside from further east of the the holy place is the outer court. And so the idea is, as you look at that diagram, basically the further you got in, the closer you get to where God is. 
In chapters 25 to 27 are instructions of how to make it all. And it starts with the most holy things in the most holy place and it works its way east to the things that are less so. So if you pick up chapter 25, verse 10, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold inside and out and make gold moulding around it. Cast four golden rings and fasten them to its four feet, two rings on either side, two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insult the poles, on it goes, gold poles, ark. Uh, verse 16, then put the ark in the put the, put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law which I will give you. Alright, we know what they are, don't we? Yeah, good. Uh, the Ten Commandments. Or verse 17. Uh, make an atonement cover of pure gold. Uh, verse 18. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold. Verse 19. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. They're to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. And on it goes. Uh, verse 25, I'll meet um, there above the cup cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law. I will meet with you and I'll give you all my commands for the Israelite. This is God's meeting place. This is where he's going to dwell. And everything about this space shouts, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's, this is a special space. This is precious. But before the most holy place is the holy place. And in that room, you can see the next heading, we have a table. And on the table was the bread of the presence, which conveys the idea that people eat with God, they fellowship with him. And then after the table, we have a lampstand. I really like this lampstand. I like it so much, we're going to read verse 31 on Make a lamp and, and use your imaginations. Where are you being taken to as we read this? Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out of its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand. Three, uh, three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers. With buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on one lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers. With buds and blossoms, one bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. Uh, the branches... Uh, the buds and the branches shall all be of one piece with a lampstand, hammered out of pure gold, and on it goes. Now, is, it, is this a lampstand or a tree? You're not going to buy this at Harvey Norman, are you? It sounds like a tree, and as you think of a return to Eden... You think of something that belongs in a garden. You move into the holy place and you're taking to somewhat something that's downright agricultural. It's, this is like a garden. 
This is like a tree in a garden. And I think that's what's being communicated. Chapter 26 says the most holy place and the holy place are sectioned off with ten elaborate curtains. Now, if we're going to hang curtains in this space, what kind of image are you going to stitch onto those curtains, do you think? If this is to take us back to the Garden of Eden, well, have a look at chapter 6, verse 31. What kind of image is on this curtain? Make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim. Wow. Can you imagine being... Knowing about this space, being in this space and going, well, there's a cherubim, there's a tree. Uh, this is quite amazing. Doesn't it remind you of what was lost? Or maybe not what was lost with the garden, but maybe the cherubim screams, do not enter. But to first get into the holy place, you first had to come through the outer court. And in that space was the altar. Chapter 27, you can see the big numbers 27 there, and uh, we've heard so much about gold. So what metal is the altar to be overlaid with in verse 2? Who said gold? Nobody said gold. That's good because you've read it. Verse 2, it's bronze. Is bronze less precious than gold? Absolutely. So what's being communicated? It's all here to teach us something. The further away we are from the most holy place, the very presence of God, the less precious it is. It's just a simple way of showing you that. The closer you get to the most holy place, the more precious, the more careful, the more holy become, everything becomes. And so this is a tabernacle where our holy God is going to dwell with his people. And it is a long way from Eden. That, that is true. We see that, that in the barriers between God and man, the separation of which is precious and pure and holy from that which is not pure and holy. And so there's a distance here. And at this point, if this is we're reading this for the first time, who gets to enter? Who gets to play in this space? Well, in chapters 28 and 29, we discover who gets to go in next to nobody. <laughs> it's hardly anybody. It's just a select group of people. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, you needed to come from one particular tribe. That's one out of the 12. And from a particular family in that tribe... And these people then could serve in these spaces as priests. And only they could go into the holy places of the tabernacle on behalf of everyone else. And we see it even in the clothes the priests had to wear. So chapter 28, verse 21, uh, where did you go? There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. And so the 12 tribes of Israel are named over the heart of the priest as he did the work in the tabernacle. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, verse 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. And so there it is again, the ordinary Israelite, 
they cannot enter God's space. They cannot get close to God. The priest goes in for them. And he's going to bear their names, if you like. And so, of course, this whole idea of God dwelling with his people, it's possible, but it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, every time I fly to Sydney, I enter the aircraft at the top of the stairs. I don't turn left. I couldn't turn left even if I wanted to. I turn right, don't I? Because if I go left, well, there's a hostess there and there's a curtain that's drawn and then past the curtain is a door that's locked most of the time to the door to the cockpit. I don't belong in that spaces. In such circumstances, that there's no way that space is open to me. It's forbidden. I would be out of place in those spaces. It wouldn't be right. I'm not fit for it. You get the idea? I mean, when Sophie had heart surgery at six months of age, the nurse took her in her arms and walked her through the curtain, through the doors, into the operating theatre. Same thing. Demands our respect. It wouldn't be right or appropriate for us to be in those spaces. We don't belong. We're not fit for it. Those spaces are special. Uh, And they're special because there's something potentially dangerous about them that says, keep out. You have no right and no privilege to be here. It's for your good that you're not. And that's the kind of sense here. But you need to take it up, not just a notch, you've got to take it up a billion notches. Because this isn't a cockpit or a a, a surgery theatre. This... This is the place of the holy God. It is sacred. It is holy. Because God himself is there. And so you cannot encroach on this space. The only way you can be near is via a priest who's doing all this on your behalf. Now how does the priest do that? Well, here's the next difficulty. He makes the sacrifices to the Lord on our behalf of the people to cover the sin of the people. And that's what the altar is for. Because the wages of sin is death. And this is the point of the sacrifice. The point of the sacrifice is to remind us, to remind Israel, that the wages of sin is death. And as people come to do business with God, to fellowship with him, the tabernacle shouts loudly, It is not an easy thing to to approach this holy God. It comes at a cost. And the cost of sin is death. And the animal slaughtered represents that death as a substitute. That beast dies instead of me, so to speak. That's the cost. It dies in the place of the worshipper as blood is poured out. It's your best beast, by the way. And so it is a powerful reminder that to stand in the space of this holy God is dangerous. It is no small thing and that death happens. To be fit before God, there will be blood and there will be death, such as the price of sin. 
And the sacrifices, well, chapter 29, let's flick over, verse, let's look at verse 38. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day, two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at night. See, this is just general stuff. This is opening the shop, make a sacrifice, get the place pure. Or verse 42, for the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of the meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you and speak with you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. Every single day they're doing this. A continual reminder to the people of their sin and their need for cleansing before this holy God. One of the most important things being taught in these chapters is this. That we are sinful. And that God is holy. See, loving God with all our heart, strength, soul and mind, knowing what God wants us to do in every situation so that, we, so that what we do, so, so that we do what our holy God t- demands all the time, never giving in to selfishness and laziness, always having pure motives, that's not us. We're, we are sinful people. And to presume, to dare to come into the presence of God is not a safe thing. I mean, you've got to pass through a lot of security checks here, don't you? There are a lot of steps that need to be followed. The right kind of sacrifice. The priest has to wear the right kind of clothes. They've got to purify themselves. Everything has to be just so. Because the Lord was going to dwell among his people. Which means we can't treat God casually or flippantly. We can't rock up to God and just pat him on the back. How you going, mate? We can't. God doesn't tolerate our wickedness or sin. Because our God is a holy God. But for us to know God, to be called a child of God, to be one of his people and to call on him as Heavenly Father... For God to intimately dwell among us by his own spirit, none of it comes easy. So how does this work in the New Testament? Where do we find a tabernacle in the New Testament? Well, if you had your Bibles open at John chapter 1, verse 14, you would read there that the word became flesh and dwelt among us which literally says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we read that and go, wow, in Jesus, God dwelt among us. He lived among us. Jesus is the very dwelling place of God. We know that, don't we? Like in, in, Later on in John's Gospel, as the disciples go, ooh and ah, over the size of the temple stones, look how big they are. Isn't this temple awesome, Jesus? Jesus says, yeah, tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. It's pretty easy. Don't get too excited about that, boys. And it was only later they realised Jesus was talking about himself. He's the tabernacle. He is the temple. Jesus is Emmanuel, 
He is God come to us. And sin? <laughs> sin isn't dealt with by killing an animal. Well, it's not dealt with by, uh, it's not cleansed with a mere lamb sacrifice. The book of Hebrews will tell you that. Hebrews chapter 10, the Lord Jesus is the one true sacrifice for sin. It needed to be the one true lamb of God. Hebrews chapter 10, the blood of the lamb, the son of God will truly deal with our sin. And as his blood is shed, it's blood shed. It's that death on the cross that makes us holy. See, what is it that makes us holy? We might think, well, I've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes me holy. Lots of Christians think that. They're not entirely wrong. But if you were to ask the writer of Hebrews, they would say that we have been made, he would write, or she, oh, that was controversial, strike that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or just to be sure, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, tells us that Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. See, what makes us holy? Jesus does. His death on the cross, his blood shed for sinners. And look what it took to bring us to God. That Emmanuel, God with us, would die. No, it's not easy. Yet any horror we have at our sin, any feeling of guilt within, it should only be not just matched, but completely surpassed by the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has taken wretched sinners like us and he's brought us personally to the Holy Father. He's the dwelling place. He's the sacrifice. He's the high priest. He's the risen, ascended mediator. And so guilt, friends, is not our master. Fear is not our master. Jesus is. And now we have confidence to approach the throne of God. Complete confidence to come into his space. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that. Hebrews 10.19 tells us that. And now we can stand in his grace. Before we couldn't stand. But Romans chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that in Christ Jesus, we can stand in the grace of God. We now have a personal, dynamic relationship with God in ways that Moses and Aaron could only ever dream of. Moses and Aaron could only ever dream of what we have. And we have the promise of Jesus who said, We have the promise of Jesus who said, I am with you always.
till the end of the age. That's Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. We have the promise of Jesus who said, I am with you always till the end of the age. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Jesus answers this very question, which means the presence of this holy God is now where? He's among us. By the work of God's spirit and by the proclamation of God's word, God's place has spread throughout the world. Wherever Christian people meet, there God is present and there God is accessible. When we meet as God's people, do you know that heaven and earth meets? It comes together. Our gatherings then are not just a simple get-together because we've got nowhere else to go and it's a good thing to do on Sunday. It's a place where God meets with his people. This is a place where God meets with his people. And so it's a place together where we hear from him and we speak back to him and we praise him and we encourage and support one another where we declare his goodness and give thanks to him. Is the Lord among us or not? In Christ Jesus, the answer must be yes. Amen.